Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. Welcome. Here we are doing another American Families of Faith podcast, and this is our final podcast in the Strengths in Diverse Families of Faith series. For many, this will be a great introduction, kind of a greatest hits from several different chapters of our book, Strengths in Diverse Families of Faith. Uh, For some, it will be the final podcast they'll hear, and it'll review several of the previous podcasts in more brief form. For those that uh, would like more extensive information on any of the other religious ethnic communities that we review here, there are entire podcasts dealing with each one previously. Today, we're focusing on a chapter called Surmounting the Empathy Wall, Deep Respect and Holy Envy in Qualitative Scholarship. Lauren Marks here with Dave Dollahite. And although there, there are a lot of different approaches to studying families and, and relationships in the social sciences, together we've chosen to, to use a deeply subjective way of knowing that comes from personal, meaningful, face-to-face connection with those being studied. We have done that through conducting hour-and-a-half, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour interviews in the homes of our participants. Part of the reason we've done that is we believe it's difficult to truly know persons, families, or groups that one does not deeply respect or even love. And thus, we've argued at various points that the best qualitative scholarship that's based on words and storytelling as opposed to statistics and numbers but uh, the best qualitative scholarships often done when the exploring scholars have uh, deep respect and perhaps even a, a little holy envy towards those persons, families, or groups that they're studying. Holy envy being a, a concept introduced by the scholar Christer Stendhal. And by deep respect, we, we mean that we think that when scholars choose to intentionally move beyond an attempt to be dispassionately objective, if such objectivity is even possible for us as human beings. But we believe that if scholars actually decide to understand those with whom they're talking, those with whom they're doing uh, in-depth interviews, try to move beyond simply a dispassionate uh, approach to the process, but actually work toward uh, you know, hopefully from the, the foundation of deep respect. But if that doesn't yet exist because you don't yet know that person or know that group, that you're hoping to move toward a deep respect of those uh, that you're interviewing, both the persons as people as well as the communities to which they belong. We think otherwise uh, it's probably not going to be possible to really come to know them and understand them. As Lauren mentioned, holy envy is a great concept. That person who was um, is one of our heroes, Christopher Stendhal. He was a professor of divinity at the Harvard Divinity School, and then he became the minister of the Church of Stockholm in uh, Sweden. And he coined the idea of holy envy that when we're studying other groups or when we're talking about other groups, not only is it good to try to respect and appreciate them but maybe even to try to leave open in your mind and in your heart a place that you might actually have a desire to be more like them in some way, that you sort of envy something that they do or that they believe, that you've identified some of their virtues and their strengths, 
and you actually would like to incorporate some of those virtues and strengths into your own life. And so this particular podcast, we're going to talk about holy envy and our sense of holy envy that we have developed for members of other faith communities and for those faith communities themselves. We think that deep respect is absolutely essential for good qualitative scholarship and that holy envy in the right measure can also be valuable and enhancing. And, you know, given the kind of climate that we find ourselves in in 2021 with a great deal of polarization and uh, hostility between groups, you know, political groups and, and misunderstanding and, and suspicion across groups, we believe that it's actually never been more important to try to climb over what uh, sociologist Arlie Hochschild called the empathy wall. That is the wall that serves as a barrier between people, as a barrier uh, to empathy between people. And given that most human beings are more likely to err on the side of uh, egocentric self-concern, given the tendency that most human beings have toward ignorance and hostility, toward outgroups that have been uh, documented over uh, quite a number of of careful studies of human uh, relationships, and given the tendency that people have, uh, those who have passionately held religious and political ideologies, given their tendency to misunderstand and perhaps harshly judge others with different perspectives, we think that developing a deep respect and perhaps even some holy envy can actually bring balance to the social sciences and hopefully maybe even help our communities to get along better. One visualization of the willingness to identify with another person or social group is an empathy ladder. In the book, we have a ladder sketched out that goes over a large brick wall representing the empathy wall. But as different rungs in that empathy ladder that allows us to move from our own side of the wall to the side of the other, there are several rungs. And the first is myopic ignorance. And we move from myopic ignorance to tentative tolerance, from tentative tolerance to indirect learning, from indirect learning to healthy appreciation, from healthy appreciation to relational learning, from relational learning to deep respect, and from deep respect to holy envy. And we believe that uh, one's ability as a person and as a scholar to attain a deep knowledge of another person or group increases with additional steps uh, on that empathy ladder. Uh, we, we also believe that multiple journeys to the other side of the wall can enrich the mind, heart, identity, uh, sense of relationship, and connection of the empathic scholar. Often it takes many journeys to create a deep understanding. Our own early scholarship together uh, on religion and families centered solely on on fathers within our own faith community. And in time, we mustered up the courage to expand beyond our own scope of experience. We were at that point tolerant of other faiths, but we were not well-informed. That might represent the tentative tolerance rung on the empathy ladder. We did carefully read the sacred texts of other faiths that would represent the indirect learning, for example, on the, the empathy ladder. And we repeatedly visited and participated in an array of worship services and acquired firsthand healthy appreciation, another rung. We also interviewed clergy, received referrals to exemplar families and and entered their homes and listened. That would be a relational learning rung on the empathy ladder. Uh, Listened 
as family members from each of the diverse families we interviewed spoke about ways that their specific faiths and how their particular family relationships were uh, interlinked with their beliefs and practices. As we did these things, we gained deep respect and some holy envy, the two final ladder rungs in the empathy ladder, uh, for these diverse families themselves and for their broader religious and ethnic communities. We want to emphasize that deep respect does not mean that a scholar is not able to see the limitations and weaknesses or other negative aspects of a person or group. What it means, we believe, is that they see these limitations and weaknesses in a more textured context and avoid overly positive or negative stereotyping, uh, both of which habits should be eschewed by careful scholars. Holy envy often results from deeply honoring the best of qualities within one's own group, coupled with a a broad-minded and large-hearted desire to learn about the best in others. By the way, I should say that it was Lauren that came up with the empathy ladder model that's in the last chapter in our book. It's a really nice way to think about when there's a wall between you and another person. You know, we often maybe talk about breaking down the wall or digging under the wall. Lauren's metaphor was you sort of have to rise. You have to go kind of above and beyond yourself and your own self-interest. You have to be willing to work hard. You have to be willing to kind of ascend, you know, transcend yourself by ascending up beyond your own personal, myopic, uh, selfish uh, perceptions. And that his idea that there's kind of these rungs on the ladder and each one of them are important and a little bit challenging, but that each one takes you a little closer to going up and over a wall and then down on the other side of that wall to where you can stand next to a person on their sacred ground, get to know them from their perspective and come to respect and appreciate them and their beliefs and their practices and their values. Not that you necessarily want to adopt all of those for yourself, but that you have a profound respect for that person and what they believe and what they do, and that perhaps you may want to actually adopt something of their belief and practice into your own. It is, of course, relatively easy for us to respect people or groups with whom we share similar political, social, religious, or artistic sensibilities. It's much more difficult, of course, but perhaps more honorable and more socially meaningful to develop respect and even holy envy for a person or a group from whom we are quite different and with whom we might have very significant disagreements. We believe that America needs many more people who are willing to pay the price to learn enough about other groups and persons who are very different from them in order to develop a deep respect and even a holy envy for certain aspects of their lives. This will enable the building of communities and a nation that fulfills the promise of that great American motto, e pluribus unum, from many one. And by the way, Arlie Hochschild was a great example of this in her book. As a West Coast liberal sociologist, she went and spent extraordinary amounts of time and effort with communities in the rural South with whom she didn't feel that she had much in common, with whom she actually had quite a bit of disagreement. But she made the effort, took the time, got to know people. Not that she necessarily changed her opinion, but she certainly came to a much deeper empathy for people with whom she was willing to invest the time and energy to get to know on their turf from their perspective, rather than trying to convince them to think like her, she was willing to go and learn how they thought about things. And then she wrote in a beautiful way. And I'm blanking on the name of the book, Lauren, you probably remember. Strangers in Their Own Land. Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Hochchild. Great book. 
In that same spirit, we now briefly address some of the unique strengths of each of the eight religious ethnic communities that we featured in our book, Strengths of Diverse Families of Faith. And by unique strengths, we don't necessarily mean that the strength was exclusive to that given religious ethnic community, but we do mean that the featured strength was so richly demonstrated by families in that community that it encouraged our deep respect and holy envy. We will go through several of those religious and ethnic communities with you today. Again, we visit each of these in substantial depth, each in their own podcast. Today is a kind of a greatest hits overview. We begin with Jewish families. So in our interviews with 30 American Jewish families, including some of their adolescent kids, we found ourselves impressed with a number of things, but particularly impressed by the familial power of their sacred rituals. And we've studied religious rituals across the Abrahamic faiths for, uh, oh, probably two decades now, very intently. We've looked at daily and weekly family rituals in Islam, Catholicism, various Christian faiths, and in our own faith, uh, Mormonism. Even so, uh, in a recent study, we went on record calling Shabbat, the Jewish celebration of the Sabbath, quote, the weekly family ritual par excellence, end quote. We really have enjoyed learning from our Jewish friends about how they keep the Sabbath day holy to them and how they honor God by keeping it holy. We experienced the holy envy of this particular Jewish family ritual, a ritual, by the way, that has endured and been effectively adapted across thousands of years, despite the unspeakable persecutions that our Jewish friends have faced throughout time and across cultures. Actually, we've written, uh, in addition to this chapter in this book, we wrote a piece in a journal called Family Process, which is a journal for family therapists about Shabbat. And actually, we got a very interesting email from an Israeli Jewish psychiatrist who saw the title of this article in a professional journal, you know, scholarly journal that he read about Shabbat. But that he, he saw that the authors were from Brigham Young University, and he knew that that was a Latter-day Saint university. And he emailed us and said, you know, what? why are you Mormons writing about my holiday and my sacred day? And we wrote back and explained a little bit. And he then uh, read the piece and sent us uh, back a really generous email saying, you know, thank you for working hard to try to understand, you know, my people and our practices. And he was appreciative that we had invested enough time and energy to try to get it right. And we've also written two popular articles for our own people, one in LDS Church News and one in a magazine uh, for Latter-day Saints, where we've written about what Latter-day Saint families can learn from uh, the Jewish practice of Shabbat. And we used a number of examples that we learned that we documented in that chapter that we wrote about Jewish families, where a number of those who we interviewed spoke in a number of ways that were quite fascinating about how they kept Shabbat, how challenging and difficult it was to do so against, uh, you know, sort of external challenges where communities are scheduling events on Friday evenings and, and on Saturdays, not thinking that maybe there are Jewish folks that might like to keep that day holy. And also the kind of the internal challenges that many families face where when kids get to be a certain age, you know, meaning uh, usually early teens, where they might push back a bit and might want to complain about having to stay at home and, and have a Shabbat meal rather than being out with their friends at a party. But the lessons learned were really, really meaningful to us. And we tried to share those with members of our own faith community. One way to talk about this is that no group, no religious group 
has more carefully and intentionally converted the family dinner table into kind of a a sacred altar of family connection and bonding and devotion to God than have our Jewish friends. And I'm thinking uh, we would like to share just a little bit of briefly our own personal experiences with these faith communities. And we're going to kind of take turns and each of us will share, you know, something about one of these different communities. I've enjoyed Sabbath meals and the Sabbath day with Jewish families in a number of states. And in fact, a number of the interviews that I did with Jewish families for this project were done on Shabbat. They invited me to their home. Since they were going to be talking about religion, they thought doing it on the Friday evening or Saturday was a great double dipping of helping us with our research and also them talking about their faith. So I've really, really enjoyed that. My son was a competitive athlete and we would travel around the country and spend time in many different cities. And one of those cities was Denver and there were, it was a Jewish family there whose son also played tennis along with my son. And we really loved spending time at their home and, and enjoying their Shabbat meal with them. I'm thinking of my time in uh, Massachusetts in Amherst when I was on sabbatical there and got to spend uh, many Sabbaths with my Hasidic Jewish friends in the Chabad community there. And uh, Rabbi Edelman and others would invite us over, and I enjoyed that with my daughters. And so not only have we enjoyed you know, reading about and hearing about Shabbat observance, but also participating. And my family has tried to incorporate certain practices from the Jewish practice and observance of Shabbat in our family, where we try to you know, use uh, nicer dishes, silverware, have nicer meals, you know, use a tablecloth, linger at the table longer than on most, you know, uh, most evenings for dinner. And, you know, we definitely try to incorporate some of the things that we've learned uh, from our Jewish friends. We now shift to share with you a little bit about what we learned from Asian Christian families. Recent survey data indicate that 42% of Asian American families have Christian ties. And for many of these families, like the families that we interviewed, their uh, Christian beliefs, practices, and communities, uh, which they often call their church families, lie at the heart of personal marital and family life. A couple of unique features of our sample, the 24 families that we interviewed in depth, were that these families were all immigrants to the United States from mainland China, Japan, Korea, or Taiwan and that these individuals that we interviewed were all adult converts to Christianity. Some converted to Christianity in their native land and then immigrated to the U.S. Some converted to Christianity after their immigration to the U.S., but all were adult converts to the faith. Accordingly, one admirable feature of the Asian Christian families and their community that elicited some holy envy from us was their courage to embrace change. I mean, these families and individuals had literally crossed the globe and entered a new sociocultural world in search of their own vision and version of the better life. Most of these women and men sought advanced education and or employment that was rooted in a second or even a third language. I really admire that uh, that courage, given my own failure to try to master even a second language. Further, of these participant interviews that we conducted with individuals and families who converted to Christianity, many made profound and often uncomfortable changes as they adopted a new worldview, a new way of life, and the costs were, and in some cases continue to be, substantial. Having embraced their Christianity 
However, these families have vigorously held to what they professed to hold dear. Remember that these families were referred to us by their clergy as being exemplary, exemplary in their their depth and commitment to their faith, and also in terms of the quality of their family relationships. In visiting with these families, the sincerity of their conversions and their convictions was unquestionable and deep. No other Christian group we interviewed directly cited the Bible with more precision and accuracy, which is all the more impressive since they were quoting typically in a second or third language, although a few of the interviews were conducted in Mandarin and then translated. Another strength of pragmatic collectivism, as we've called it, was manifest by church members literally in some cases meeting newly immigrating families at the docks of the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean and making extensive efforts to help these new immigrant families to culturally, religiously, and economically adapt to life in a new land. In spite of their high levels of education and learning that was surpassed only by the Jewish families we interviewed, there was a, there was a sweetness, a, a sincerity, a humility uh, among these Asian Christian families that, that impressed us and, and even moved us. And that humility included often a gratitude to be living on American soil. Uh, to contextualize that a little bit historically, we would like our readers to, to realize that in 1989, uh, nearly half of the individuals that we interviewed were still living in China during the tragic massacre of the June 4th incident at Tiananmen Square. And when we contemplate that, we're reminded of the precious nature of religious and, and political liberty that these Asian Christian immigrants to the United States embody and that they deeply appreciate. One Asian Christian family that I will never forget, I will call the Choi family. They had originally immigrated to San Diego from Korea. In neither case did either of their parents convert to Christianity, and there was significant pain. Neither had other Christian members in their extended family, and it was a deeply difficult conversion for them in that, in, in that sense. Upon moving to San Diego, again, as we, I mentioned a moment ago, they were stepping into a new world. The Korean Christian church in the San Diego area really welcomed the Choi family, embraced them, and the mother in the Choi family made this a mission of hers. It had meant so much to her to be welcomed into this new world of American culture by other Korean Christians that she wanted to give that gift and pay it forward, so to speak, and made a conscious effort whenever she learned of a new family immigrating to meet them at the dock there in, in San Diego with her minivan and uh, to serve them dinner their very first Sunday there. At the time that I interviewed them, they had moved from San Diego to the East Coast, very fast-paced lifestyle on the I-95 corridor. The interview was beautiful. They invited me. I stepped into their home, uh, removed shoes, as is tradition in, in most Asian homes, and they surprised me with a wonderful, authentic Korean meal, which we ate on wicker or Tommy mats, uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor. It was delightful. They were hospitable and kind. Throughout the course of the interview, there was a sadness in the mother that I picked up on. And 
as time went on, it was revealed that the move to the East Coast had been very difficult for her. And as I probed and questioned a little deeper in the interview, she expressed her sorrow that no one in their East Coast setting seemed to need her, that she deeply missed her Friday night Bible studies, which she hosted, and her Sunday meals, which she also hosted. Her husband indicated that she spent great time and money on both of these activities in San Diego as well as being the self-appointed docs welcoming committee. And she said to me, I am, I'm not as happy here. No one needs me here. In San Diego, they needed me. And I was struck by this uh, sense of collectivism. For many of us in Western culture, uh, the less others rely on us or need us, the better, the less inconvenience it is. But I was moved by the example of this lovely Korean mother and wife who found joy and meaning in serving others. And that was something that, that instilled a sense of holy envy in me to want to do likewise. Well, we're going to shift gears again and discuss briefly Catholic and Orthodox Christian families. The American Catholic and Orthodox uh, Christian families that we interviewed, I recall there are 24 or 25 of those families. They often discuss the themes of unity and forgiveness in a unique kind of Catholic and Orthodox way. A few select themes and concepts from uh, that chapter include that they talked a bit about how quite a bit about how faith provides answers to life's questions, that faith teaches us to love others, you know, family members and, and others beyond the family, uh, that religion promotes marital union, uh, yeah, union, unity, and that prayer helps us to avoid or resolve conflict. And one of the ways uh, is that faith encourages forgiveness. And in particular, this issue of forgiveness was quite prominent. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, of the eight religious communities that we explore in our book, none of them, with the exception of Orthodox Judaism, featured quite the level of formality, of structure, of level of ritual embodied in the Catholic Mass and in the Orthodox Christian divine mysteries, you know, the, the Eucharist. And our participants, as well as our insider experts from, from the Catholic faith, helped us to see the sacred intention behind that structure, the longing for unity, unity with God through the Eucharist, unity with spouse because marriage is sacramental, unity with children because a family is holy and marriage and family are a sacred vocation, and also unity with um, sisters and brothers inside the faith community as well as those outside. And we saw embodied in, in both the Catholic and the Orthodox Christian faiths a kind of explicit acknowledgement that these sacred unities were frequently disrupted by personal shortcomings, by selfishness, and by sin. And so this acknowledgement of human frailty and sort of falling out that, you know, that it's natural for human beings to hurt each other in their relationships, even the relationships that are the most dear to them, their family relationships, uh, it's natural for people to hurt each other. And therefore, this idea that all of us are in need of change, of forgiving each other, of granting forgiveness to each other. And the way that it was uh, sort of formalized in the Catholic and the Orthodox communities where confession to a priest in both the Catholic and the Orthodox communities and specific ritual weekly confession to each other in, in the family in the Orthodox community was quite powerful. The fact that, that um, the Orthodox community in general 
actually forbids full participation in receiving the divine mysteries, the bread and the wine, to those who have not confessed and forgiven each other, encourage them to actually make it a weekly ritual to do so. And they had structured ways to do so. And I'll discuss those in just a second. And we find ourselves feeling a particular respect and and holy envy for that sort of extensive and explicit religious efforts of members of these faiths to try to replace um, guilt with hope, to replace bitterness with forgiveness, to replace divisiveness with unity, replace animosity with atonement by thinking about how to confess to God, you know, mistakes and sins to God, perhaps confess to a, a priest in the Catholic community, but certainly in the Orthodox community, and to confess and apologize to each other in the family and seek forgiveness. And by the way, that idea of religions forbidding members to participate in certain activities unless certain kinds of behavioral uh, standards are practiced, to those who don't experience religion in positive ways, to those who have concerns over religion trying to control people or limit people, that might seem uh, you know, problematic. Americans love to have their personal freedom and the idea that, you know, there ought to be no boundaries, no, no uh, borders, no, no barriers to our personal freedom. It's a common American idea that, frankly, is incredibly harmful. It's ridiculous to think that human beings don't need to have boundaries and borders in their relationships. In other words, that when you commit to someone to be faithful to them, that there are now boundaries, that you're not allowed to just go and have sexual relations with anyone that you might think about. That sexual relationship is to be kept within the borders, within the boundaries of the marriage, that there are behavioral boundaries that you ought not to cross over, lying, uh, abusing, infidelity, and so forth. And so we found these to be very meaningful. And I mentioned this in in a bit of detail in our chapter where we focus on Catholic and Orthodox, but I'll I'll just say it very briefly here. I was deeply impressed with uh, all three of the Orthodox families who I was able to interview that they had incorporated some type of a practice, a weekly practice, to encourage them to forgive each other. Uh, One family on their uh, drive, uh, about 30-minute drive from their home to their church, would seek and grant forgiveness to each other. Another family in the morning, Sunday morning, before they hopped in their car to go to drive to the church service, they would spend a few minutes asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness for whatever offenses that they might have committed against each other that last week. And another family did it uh, the night before on Saturday evenings during their family meal. And as I've shared this with a number of students over the years, that sort of simple, regular patterned approach to asking and, and granting forgiveness. It just smooths relationships. All relationships, all long-term relationships involve some type of harm, some type of uh, offenses, some type of people bumping up against each other. And and, and uh, the need for forgiveness, the need for uh, both granting and asking forgiveness is a crucial feature in long-term intimate relationships. And the fact that the Catholic and the Orthodox Christian communities encourage that practice by encouraging people to seek unity with God and unity with each other through confession, through seeking and granting forgiveness is powerful. It's something that I definitely feel a sense of holy envy about. We turn now to Black Christian families. 
We have interviewed about 40 at this point, and uh, 80% of American Black Christian families that we interviewed hailed from inner city contexts. Others were from suburban or rural areas, but 80% were from inner city areas. These were uh, typically blue-collar families whose married status uh, was often the exception on streets lined with, with single mother families, often that included poverty and need. Selected themes from these families that we interviewed included faith during difficult times. A direct quote related said, the power of prayer gets us through. And faith holds my family together. Another direct quote from one of the participants. There was an urgency about faith for many of these families. Faith mattered deeply and profoundly for many of these families. The United States is not a post-race nation. Poverty, often deep poverty, as well as unemployment, inadequate uh, educational opportunities, discrimination, incarceration, and and many other social ills were very familiar to them and and to their loved ones. Further, these these marriage-based families that we interviewed, marriage-based black families, were often the first to receive knocks of need, a, a phrase that we coined. And by knocks of need, we mean literal knocks that come to the door from neighbors that involve requests for money, uh, for help, or even temporary housing for, for the less fortunate who often surrounded them in their communities. Interesting to note that every single Black Christian family that we interviewed had housed unrelated folks in their homes at one point or another. And in one case, I asked a family, how, how many youth have you had here in your home over the years? And neither the wife nor husband could even put a figure to it. They guessed that it was somewhere over 30, but this was a, a very typical practice to open their doors, literally, financially, literally, spiritually, relationally, to those who needed it. Their lived religion was not a sanitized upper middle class spirituality. In, in most cases, it was a, a desperate, sincere, deep pleading of faith a pleading faith of, of survival that even now in 2021 still seem to contain some echoes of the mournful notes of the, the shame of American slavery. For these families, their faith was not merely something that enriched or added some meaning to life. Faith was life itself. In terms of holy envy, we, we cannot claim to, to envy the plight of, of one of the most discriminated groups in U.S. history, Black Americans. But we do certainly envy the profound depth of their living faith in a God that reportedly heard and and sustained them through poignant challenges, challenges that were and are ever-present for most of these families even now. One of my favorite stories, period, from our entire American Families of Faith project involved J.D. and Bootsy Denton. It is typical that we use pseudonyms in telling stories. In this case, it is their real name, which is used by permission and also by virtue of the fact that there have been two television documentaries done about this remarkable family in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area that have told the story publicly. But in May of 2005, Bootsy 
Her real name is Barbara, but her family nickname is Bootsy. She and James, J.D., had uh, five foster children living with them at this point. Their biological kids were already out of the house. And Bootsy was loading some food into the back of their Suburban out on the street. And a driver driving under the influence came weaving up the street and, uh, and crushed her against the back bumper. A nurse from across the street saw what happened and engaged in some heroic life-saving measures that ultimately saved Bootsy's life, but both of her legs were amputated. She was in a coma and flatlined numerous times. JD would later tell me that uh, he said, at least I know my, my wife ain't no cat. A, a cat only has nine lives, and my wife flatlined 13 times. She's something special. She's something different. And indeed, she, she was resuscitated uh, 13 times. And even when he received some encouragement to seriously consider pulling the plug at one point, a deeply difficult decision, J.D. ultimately told the medical help that until he had mortgaged the last dime out of his home, they were to do all that they could for his Bootsy and that he would be praying for a miracle. Uh, miraculously, she, she did come out of it. And at the time I conducted the Denton's interview, Bootsy was stabilized, but still had tremendous difficulty communicating. She did explain at one point, turning from me to her husband, J.D., that she would not blame him if he ran from their difficult situation. And he responded to that, not to me as interviewer, but to her. Uh, he said, my mama told me when we got married, son, you've got to listen to the words. That's what she told me. You've got to listen to the words. And then he told Bootsy, I listened to the words. For me, this marriage is till death do us part and forever after that. I'm always going to have your back, and I want you to have mine. It is, uh, at the time of our podcast, been 16 years since I conducted that interview. Bootsy Miraculously is still alive. I've been to visit them on occasion in the intervening years. And to watch J.D. pick Bootsy up out of her wheelchair and put her in the passenger seat of their van, to go for their daily drive as a couple is one of the most sacred things that I've witnessed. I will share with our listeners that my wife Sandra and I have two sons, and the second of those is named Denton, uh, named in part after the marital commitment that J.D. and Bootsy have showed each other under the most remarkable of circumstances. Wow. I don't know how to how to follow that. It reminds me of uh, the musical Hamilton uh, that I just watched again recently, where after a very touching song about the death of Alexander Hamilton's son, the, the character who plays Thomas Jefferson comes out and says, can we get back to politics? <laughs> um, little, little too much deep emotion. So I, I'm going to say, that was beautiful and profound, and, and uh, I hope our listeners really felt the love that you have for the Denton family and for what an incredible family they are. 
And now we'll, we'll move on to talking about evangelical Christian families. So evangelical Christian families are um, the largest of the eight American religious communities that we explored in this special issue. Gallup polls and, and Pew Research polls have shown that anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of Americans self-identify as evangelicals, uh, although obviously, like in every other faith, levels of active involvement and belief vary dramatically, and you know, levels of belief in, in, in all faiths are lower than affiliation. So the folks that we interviewed included 23 evangelical Christian families, including a number of their, uh, of their youth. And as is the case with all of these faiths that we're discussing in our book, Strengths of Diverse Families of Faith, we spend an entire chapter talking about each faith. And in this podcast, we're simply touching on a few of the highlights and, and sharing a couple of experiences. Some of those that we interviewed uh, that were uh, evangelical uh, overlapped with some other religious ethnic communities, for example, Black Christians or Asian Christians. But in this particular chapter, we focus on evangelical belief and practice. The nature of the Bible was very important, that evangelicals were very focused on the, the Word of God and you know, quoted the Bible a lot and honored both the Old and, and the New Testaments. I don't know, not unique, but a distinctive strength of this community is that they were very open to that they were the only group that sort of mentioned as, as a major theme the idea that they were open to getting help from often pastors or counselors who were available to them in their churches to seek help outside of their marital relationship. And unfortunately, um, too many couples don't seek help and, and they only rely upon their own resources and their own sort of expertise in trying to strengthen their marriage. And so those who are willing to seek help from those who have some training, some expertise as, as therapists, as counselors, whether that's pastoral counseling or professional family therapy, marriage counseling, in many cases, that can be life-saving, well, marriage-saving, and we think that that's a great strength. And we appreciated that willingness to look outside of their own family to draw strength from uh, their pastors and, and from others in their faith community to help them strengthen their marriage. As I mentioned, they did turn to the Bible a lot. For example, verses uh, about who can find a virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, which also, of course, is uh, used uh, quite a bit by our Jewish friends. A number cited some of Paul's epistles, the verse in Ephesians uh, 5.25, quote, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, end quote. That idea, that sense of servant leadership of giving yourself for others was quoted by quite a number of the husbands and fathers. This whole idea of servant leadership, where as parents, you're supposed to combine humility and service and sacrifice, the willingness to sacrifice for others as part of your Christianity was, was mentioned uh, a number of times. And those efforts of families to sincerely try to live their faith, to turn to sacred texts, to try to improve relationships, that was, that was very meaningful to us. By way of personal experience with evangelical Christians, I'll just mention briefly my friendship with Pastor Mark Turco. He's an ordained Assemblies of God minister and, and is an associate pastor at a, a local evangelical church here in uh, Utah County. And he and his wife, Christian, are, are marvelous examples of uh, evangelical Christian faith and commitment and devotion. Mark and Christian have invited my wife, Mary, and I to their home for dinner. We've had them in our home for dinner. 
And I've enjoyed many long conversations with both Mark and Christian about their faith, our faith, you know, connections, um, differences, and we have mutual respect for each other's faith. Neither of us are going to try to convert each other to our faith. We know well that, that we each love and are devoted to our own faith. And that idea of understanding that when you talk with someone about their faith, if you think of your job as an effort to try to convert that person, that's going to put up barriers and walls and, and bring tensions. If you think of your responsibility in that relationship to come to learn to understand that person with whom you're talking and understand how they live their faith, what they believe, what they practice, what their faith means to them, then you build connections and relationships and probably have greater influence on each other. My own experience has been in quite, in quite a few of these interviews, actually, where I asked you know, 20 to 30 questions over a couple of hours time, almost inevitably, they would ask at the end of the interview, well, you know, you've listened patiently and enthusiastically to us talk about our faith. We would love to hear you talk about your faith. You know, people wanted to return the favor. And of course, in that setting, I said, well, I'm here as an interviewer to learn about your faith. I committed to your pastor that I would not talk about my faith. And so, you know, thank you for asking, but I'm really just here to, to learn about you. A few took that and, and said, okay, we understand. A few said, well, okay, that's fine. That's nice that you promised our pastor that you wouldn't uh, you know, try to process us, and, and that's great. But, but look, despite that, we still want to hear about your faith. And then I would have to say, that's very kind of you to offer. I'm so sorry. I, I can't do that. I promised your, your rabbi, your priest, your, your imam that I would not speak of my faith because some of them were concerned that I might you know, try to be evangelical. And then they respected that. And uh, my own experience is I really love to learn about other faiths. And, and in the class that I teach uh, here at BYU on uh, family and world religions, I'm so delighted that Pastor Turco, uh, Pastor Mark, has been willing to come to my class uh, each semester for now many years, I think eight or nine years. Uh, he's come and, and spent a, an hour uh, with my students sharing about his faith, and they've loved having him. They asked him lots of questions. He has also taken the time to get to know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my faith. And so he has respect and appreciation for us. He's not interested in converting. He thinks that we are wrong theologically on, on some very important things. But he's taken the time to come to understand us and to respect us. And it's wonderful to have a friendship, a long-term friendship with someone who's different from you, but who respects you and who you respect. And that mutual respect and holy envy is an important part of what we're trying to accomplish in the American Families of Faith Project. Yes, it is. And as we turn next to Muslim families, in some ways, these families represent a faith quite different in some respects than many of the others that we interviewed. The 25 American Muslim families that we interviewed, a total of 56 individuals, claimed more than half a dozen nations as their countries of nativity. So internationally, this was the most diverse of any of the eight religious ethnic communities in our study. Also, that diversity of nations of origin remind us that this is a rapidly expanding faith and a, a growing global force. Uh, for some, this thought yields some fear, frankly. Our experience, however, was that many of the families who shared their homes and their stories with us were of a quality and character that any nation might welcome and that you would welcome into your neighborhood, remembering that these were exemplar families referred to us by their imam, their clergy. 
the relationships in these families, the Muslim families, seemed structured, no question, but strong, hierarchical, but warm. Indeed, the structured hierarchy of Sharia, or Islamic law, that's uh, seen as oppressive by many, both wives and husbands report, brought a clarity of roles, complementarity, and a harmonized vision for many of these families that we interviewed. As we explain in some detail in the chapter, Islam reportedly served as a means for strengthening the family as a whole by encouraging respect and fostering understanding among members of the family. It seemed that uh, the roles of individuals in the family, as taught in Islam and Sharia, offered a sense of stability to their family relationships. Islam is, is one of few faiths, for example, that has a structured process through which marital reconciliation efforts are to be made, step by step by step, before you quit and give up on a marriage and file for divorce. There are some, some very structured steps that are taken in, in Sharia that, that integrate counsel from extended loving family members and eventually clergy and counselors, if needed, that we honored. Further, although we don't write about this in great detail, the family processes, the shared devotion, unity, and celebration around the month-long fast of Ramadan, it, uh, it elicited a joy, even an ebullience, from Muslims of various ages, including younger children that were involved in the interviews, all the way up to older women and men. I wanted to share briefly my firsthand experience of being invited to participate in and witness a Ramadan firsthand as an invited guest. And the meaning, the excitement surrounding this faith-based sacrifice and, and celebration was truly unique in scope compared with anything I'd ever seen. Many listeners may be aware that the Ramadan fast lasts for a month during the daylight hours, abstention from food and drink and sexual relations during the daylight hours is the practice. And then at sundown, there is a communal break the fast celebration that takes place. And the discipline of this month-long fast is supplemented by zakat, uh, which is a charitable offering of up to 2.5%, 2.5% of one's net wealth as an effort designed to relieve the suffering of the poor whose involuntary fast is constant. A staggering figure, if you're thinking, for example, of someone who might have a million-dollar net worth, a $25,000 offering annually to the poor. We can't help but think if, if this level of generosity were practiced not only by all Muslims, but by all privileged members of the human family, world hunger would be eradicated in very short order. Indeed, the lived principle of zakat stimulates not only a sense of deep respect and holy envy among us, but a hope for a better world. Dave really was touched by the combination of Ramadan and zakat and what it meant to many of these families. So we're going to uh, now shift to our final of the seven groups that we talk about, mainline Protestant families. Listeners will note that we don't talk about our holy envy of our own faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because we, in this chapter, focused on the respect and, and love that we had for our friends of other faiths. 
And in the book that we've been talking about, we do have a chapter on Latter-day Saint families as well, written uh, by both LDS and folks of other faiths as well. So all the chapters in our book are written by a combination of people that are kind of insiders of the faith community, as well as those that are not insiders to provide, you know, both that kind of insider and outsider perspective. So we'll shift gears now and and, uh, talk about mainline Protestant families that we interviewed. Uh, We interviewed uh, 20 mainline Protestant Christian families, a total of 47 individuals, and perhaps more than any other of the faith communities uh, who we interviewed, they repeatedly discussed their belief that God is love. That that was stressed and that was quoted from 1 John 4, 8 is where that that, uh, idea comes from. And many of those that we interviewed uh, drew explicit attention to the fact that the two commandments that Jesus taught to love God and to love your neighbor were core values for them and that they felt loving God first and then loving neighbor, including the nearest neighbors, those of their family, was a core religious belief and value for them. And so a number of them kind of summarized this as love God, love people. And we were often inspired by the devout efforts of our mainline Christian families uh, who we interviewed to live out those beliefs in very pragmatic ways in their own families and then also by serving others in their communities. And there there was this sort of focus on loving their neighbors as themselves and, and also loving those who aren't necessarily their neighbors in terms of people that live in the same neighborhood, but their neighbors broadly defined, uh, those that were in need in their community. Many of those that we interviewed, uh, a mainline Protestant faith, believed in the transforming power of God's love through the Holy Spirit that enabled them to love each other uh, more deeply. One example of this is is a a mother. We go into this in more detail in the chapter on mainline Christian families. The story of a a mother who uh, I interviewed who talked about how much she appreciated that her husband and her son, a teenage son, went to a soup kitchen each Saturday together to serve food to the homeless in their community. And she spoke with great emotion about what effect that had on their father-son relationship And of course, also that it was serving those in need in their community. And that kind of social justice approach or, you know, progressive approach to religion that emphasizes caring for the people in greatest need was very impressive. And we had great respect and admiration for that. And that type of effort in all faith communities, religion prompts people to do good for each other. There's a number of books written that document very clearly that religions do tend to prompt a great deal of effort toward charitable service and charitable offerings. And that, you know, many, many people are benefited throughout the world because of of that emphasis that religion encourages people to reach out beyond themselves. But we saw that particularly shown in wonderful ways among our mainline Protestant Christian families that we interviewed. Several uh, talked also about the fact that they loved God and they felt that God loved them and that God forgave them for their sins, that that helped them to love and forgive each other in their family and that that made a real difference uh, for them. And they explained that their sort of sense of relationship with God changed how they approached their own family relationships and how they interacted with their spouse and their children. So I guess I want to just finish up with a couple of quick quotes from a couple of participants on this theme that used phrases such as, quote, relating to each other through God brings a lot of unity, end quote. Or as another participant put it, quote, God's relationship with us is reflected in our marriage, end quote. 
And that was impressive to us. And the sense of holy envy that taking one's beliefs, one's relationship with God, and not just enjoying that relationship with God, but thinking, what does my relationship with God mean for me as a spouse and as a parent? How can I reflect my love of God and God's love of me in my love of my spouse and my children? How can I reflect God's forgiveness of me in how I interact with my spouse and children? Just a brief story that I'll share. I talked about this in quite a bit of detail in our podcast on mainline Christian families, but I was raised in a mainline Protestant family. I was raised in the Episcopal faith. And so my parents and my brother uh, went with me to those services. Both my brother and I served as altar boys in the Episcopal church. For me, the greatest example of this type of love that, that we've been talking about was manifest by Father Todd Ewald and Mrs. Ewald who adopted my father and his siblings after their parents were killed and then died of cancer a few years later. So my father and his siblings became orphans in their teen years, and, and Father Ewald came and, uh, and literally adopted them and brought them into their community, and, uh, and that, that really saved uh, their lives in many ways. And my father, though by the time you know that I became quite religious myself in my late teens and converted to a different faith from the one that he raised me in, I then learned that he actually no longer believed in God and was a pretty devout atheist at that point. But that didn't stop him from being involved in that faith community and caring for others and caring for my mom, who was a single parent when my dad met her, and from setting a moral example for me about honesty and about devotion that was very meaningful in my life growing up. And so also, I guess I want to mention my uncle Gene, who spent his life as an Episcopal priest and served thousands of people over decades of, of time as a priest. And I just have great respect for that kind of devotion. So in conclusion, we've shared our experiences in interviewing a number of families from various faiths. And we've shared a bit about how we have learned from them, learned to respect and deeply almost to the point of, in some cases, well, to the point, in a number of cases, of having this sense of holy envy. We have cherished coming to know these families. They, they led us into their homes. Uh, in some cases, we were fed uh, generously, and, and we were always treated hospitably. But in some cases, the level of hospitality was above and beyond anything that we expected. We've been graciously received into synagogues and mosques and churches and chapels by religious leaders and religious uh, persons across many denominations, many branches in the Christian, uh, Jewish, and Islamic faiths. We've benefited and learned so much by those interviews that we've done with rabbis and imams, with pastors and priests and bishops of various faiths. These very busy, often overworked, and very generous clergy allowed us to interview some of the most devoted families in their faith communities. They recommended us to those families and those families to us. And we learned so much by being in these homes around kitchen tables and in living rooms, learning from them. And many times I found myself thinking, boy, I would love to have my family be really close friends with this family that I'm interviewing. I would love for my kids to be good friends with these kids and these families. You know, boy, what I've just heard is so powerful. It's such a great example of devotion. I would like our family to be more like that. And so this process that that Lauren and I went through of learning to sort of move from tolerance to appreciation to respect to holy envy 
was a beautiful and life-changing and career-changing process that I, I will never forget. Yes, uh, certainly true. Dave, we're both story-loving guys. We love narratives. And many of the narratives, the, the stories, the, the experiences that these families shared with us were both religiously and relationally sacred. People told us about births, deaths, marriages, transcendent experiences, some heartbreaks, and even challenges. Those kinds of stories were poured out to us at, at different times, and we came to know of these families' strengths and something of their struggles. And we've had the privilege to write about both. But as you were saying, in the final analysis, at the end of our repeated journeys over the empathy wall and back, we both have been changed. We've been changed as researchers. But more than that, we we want to be better partners in our marriages, uh, more devoted and responsive parents, more dedicated helpers to our sisters and brothers in the human family, whether they're of our own faith community or not. We've learned much, and what we've learned from these families in their words and, and in their homes has enriched our world, and the sum of these experiences has kindled a desire in us to share the best of what we've learned from and, and about these diverse families with our own children and with the rising generation of students that we have the pleasure of working with in, in our university community. We've come to really appreciate the words of the philosopher Martha Nussbaum, who wrote, quote, any self-knowledge worth the name tells you that others are as real as you are and that your life is not just about you. It is about accepting the fact that you share a world with others and about taking action directed at the good of others, end quote. A beautiful sentiment. Our hope is that our shared exploration and the cumulative experience that we've shared will stimulate increased depth of maturity that will enable us to, to scale the empathy wall and behold noble aspects of what we ourselves hope to become and to see those aspirations at some level in the faces of families we once thought of as the other. It has been a marvelous journey, hasn't it, Dave? It's been wonderful, and we hope that our listeners will take a listen to some of the other podcasts that we've done in which we go into detail on these uh, wonderful families of various faiths, and we hope that our listeners enjoy that process to learn and hopefully maybe to, to influence their own religious lives and their own family lives in ways that we hope will be a blessing to many families. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.